everyone, this is Nate Scott, and this is the For the Win podcast, your home to everything that's buzzing in the world of sports. My guest today is my colleague at For the Win. He is back from Minnesota, fresh off a triumphant American win in the Ryder Cup. It's Luke Curdenine. Hey, man. Nate, how are you? I, I'm, I'm fantastic. I'm great. I'm beaming with American pride. I'm wearing my Don't Tread on Me uh, Spanx today, and I, I feel good. I feel really good. Um, well, that's that's really good news for you, Nate. <laughs> really good news for you. <laughs> the empire has fallen. Luke, Europe had a good run, and it's going to come crumbling down. Here's my one quick question, which a few friends asked me this weekend. All right, let's hear it. After Brexit, why are the English uh, golfers allowed on Team Europe? Uh, it's 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 a it's a good question, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I mean, come on, Brexit means Brexit, right? We we need to secede from this entire thing. I, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, um, you know, England can play by itself. They can petition to maybe be the third team, but I don't know why these Spaniards and Swedes are are allowing this. I I for one wouldn't stand for it. I, I think I think it's a fair, but it's you know, look, everything's going to get blown up now and uh, reevaluated every little nook and cranny of this. So, um, you know, they 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 should really invite you into into this committee in order to really break this I'm down. I'm ready, Europe. Come bring me in. I uh, I have plans for the world. I think the U.S. is going to annex uh, Japan as one of the Hawaiian Islands. Europe will take Australia as a penal colony, reclaim it, and we're we're going to go worldwide with this thing. And yeah, I think so, you know, just, alone. just make the meeting at like three o'clock on a Thursday when you, when Nate goes into full like zany Nate mode. That's what I do. <laughs> That's when my best ideas happen right towards the end of the week, right when I'm exhausted and freaked out. Anyway, that's not what we're ta- here to talk about. We are here to talk about the Ryder Cup, which the United States won demonstratively. I'll use as an adverb, winning 17-10 over Team Europe. Uh, sort of an anticlimactic finish. Uh, one when Lee Westwood had a lovely little meltdown and uh, Ryan Moore, what did he do? He sort of just putted and, and and ended up winning after Westwood, I don't think, had a meltdown. Ryan Moore hit an unbelievable fairway wood on, what was that, on 16? Yeah, on the par, on the par 5. On the par 5, ended up, he eagled that hole and... And um, yeah, he just sort of, it, it wasn't as much as a collapse from Westwood as much as it was just sort of a continuous backslide, you know, yeah. um, and this is what was with Westwood now, we were talking about a little before the show, he's, um, there was a point where if he was going to win his majors, he would have won them by now, he was a, one of the best players in the world without a doubt, and he just never did, and that's clearly taking a, taken a toll on his, um, on his mindset, and now, you know, Every time he gets under the gun and he needs to do something under pressure, he just kind of flinches, and that's exactly what we saw. You know, um, that was a big that was a big turning point. Uh, he was kind of one of those matches where, if he would have pulled out a win there, um, the conversation or the feeling around the place would have been a lot different. But um, he didn't, and that kind of just gave way to this huge tide of American momentum. Absolutely. So Ryan Moore wins it for the Americans. I'd argue, and I think you'd agree with me, that the match was actually won earlier that day when Patrick Reed somehow held off the human fireball that was Rory McIlroy to win the first match. And I think when that one ended, it the writing was on the wall. Europe knew it was over. 
I think so too. You know, it's it, it's interesting. Um, I wrote about this before the Sunday singles matches. I wrote about it on Twitter the night before too. Um, I said, look, if you're I get that it's fantastic spectacle for golf to put Patrick Reed playing like he was against Rory McIlroy playing like he was. But if I'm Davis Love, I am not. I, I want my Patrick Reed card to be a sure point. You only need five of them at that point. So um, I wouldn't have taken the risk in potentially getting zero points out of one of my best simply because he went up against, as you said, the human fireball that is Rory McIlroy. Um, but look, he took that risk and it paid off. I mean, he he sort of went number one receiver versus number one cornerback, for uh, to use a football analogy, and, um, and it completely dislodged everything Europe was trying to do. Like every bit of momentum for a European comeback was going to start with Rory McIlroy, and Patrick Reed went in there with his red, white, and blue and just crushed it all. Um, it was so. I'm not sure it was the best tactical decision, but it worked out well. And man, what an was, incredible match! It was a very American sort of tactical decision. You know, it's just sort of like I'm putting my best guy out there. You put your your best guy out there. We're gonna punch each other in the mouth, and whoever's still standing is gonna win the Ryder Cup. And, <laughs> and Davis Love was like, "Let's let's do it." Like Patrick, and you had to know Patrick Reed wanted it, and and I think it all came to a head. You wrote about this. Uh, Shane Ryan, wrote, who was on the podcast last week, wrote about it really well at Golf Digest. Um, I believe it was the eighth when they both hit those outrageous birdie putts, one after the other. Um, you could uh, – was that the eighth? Was that the eighth hole? Um, that was the eighth hole, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Rory McIlroy hits a, I don't know, a 30-footer, goes crazy, yells, I can't hear you at the crowd, and, of course, Patrick Reed then hits a 28-footer. And – you could see McElroy sort of, he kind of smiled and gave him a, a fist dap and they walked off the, the green arm in arm. And you could see McElroy, he was just, it was just, he'd, he'd given every single thing he had and Reed was just going right there with him. And McElroy was like, all right, you know, well, let's, let's play these last 10 holes. But I, I just gave you my best shot and you hit me right back. And okay, and Reed, Reed sort of had the mental stamina to outlast it and Rory even talked about it at the end of it he was just broken he was just broken down he was tired physically he was tired emotionally you know dealing with those crowds which we'll talk about a little later but dealing with those crowds that pressure him putting team Europe basically on his back and just saying I'm the best player alive I'm going to carry you guys this whole way even if none of the team really is ready for this I'm going to do it and and by the end, Patrick Reed just warmed down, and you could tell McElroy was just done. Yeah, you could. And it's so funny about that eighth hole. Um, so I was in the media center when that happened, actually. I saw a lot of that match, but I wasn't there for that, unfortunately. But it was, it was really interesting because um, you can hear the different kinds of roars um, that go on around the golf course. So, like, when something happens on a big screen monitor, that invokes a certain kind of roar. When somebody witnesses something live, that's a certain kind of roar, um, and and on and on. So you could hear this this roar from the the distance of the crowd when that McElroy putt went in. Then you saw it pop up on television, and it was like, wow, you know, look at that reaction. This This is crazy. And then a few... What, like a minute later, you hear the loudest roar that I've ever heard um, 
yeah, at a sporting event. It was just so loud. And then you see the TV clip to Patrick Green. You're like, no, this doesn't go in. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> and he goes in many finger bags, Rory. I mean, it was just so unbelievable, um, that sequence of events. And I think it got to a point where, as you said, like they were so amped up that in golf, you can only, you know, in golf, you're essentially trying to thread a needle, right? Like, it's not like American football or soccer or whatever, where if you're a little more hyped up, you can run a little faster or whatever. Like, you're you're, you're trying to steady yourself most of the time. Yeah. So, um, and I think what we saw there was that they both hit such a crescendo that after that match, it started to level out a bit because they could only, I mean, Rory looked like he was actually going super cyan at that. Yeah. At it, um, it was incredible. Here's my question. So I've read a bit about this this week and sort of the consensus among writers is Patrick Reed, probably never going to win a major, uh, very good player, not a, a top elite talent, yet for whatever reason, you can put him in match play against anyone on earth and he's going to go and he's going to stick with them. What? Like, why? Why? Like, like I, I haven't really read a full, like, breakdown of, is it just his temperament? Is it his mentality? Is it the, the fact that he can throw away bad holes and just toss them off and move on to the next helps him for some reason? Like, wh- why is it so uniquely suited for how, how he is as a player? So I think you see, um, the best way I can describe it is that I think you see two different kinds of professional athletes, really. Um, they motivate, or I should say, they motivate two different kinds of athletes that motivate themselves in two different ways. So the first way is the Jordan Spieth types of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who they get into a little zone and they, they don't want to worry about what's going on behind them or around them. Um, they're just trying to execute their game plan. They want to focus in isolation. You know, it's, it's, it's almost ev- everything else is a distraction. They speed, are, they, it's, it's always speed against the golf course or against himself. It's never him against, or, or that's how it seems to me anyway. You're exactly right. It's Spieth against the golf course. He doesn't want to think about Rory. He doesn't want to think about the field. It's just he's in his little zone. I mean, there are countless athletes like this. Um, And Patrick Reed is the opposite. He, and so is Rory, incidentally, he draws his motivation externally. Um, He, if you put him in isolation and said, execute your game plan, they kind of waver a little bit. They get bored. Um, they need to look their enemy in the eye when they when they take them on. And, and it, it makes them to get better. It makes them get better. And Rory's a lot like that. He's often his young career so far, kind of his focus will drift if he's you know, he gets complacent quickly. If he gets to world number one, he starts dropping off and if he's not, he starts spiking up. Um, and I think Patrick reads like that. And so when we talk about this in the context of the Ryder Cup, this is perfect for both of those two guys like you you say okay patrick you're gonna go take on you're gonna go take out rory McIlroy, go and it just turns into this me versus you and then patrick reed forcing himself to get better it's it's really strange but it's it's pretty thrilling at the same time someone else this week who you know came out as someone that really was energized by the by the Ryder Cup atmosphere in a surprising way to me was 35-year-old Brant Snedeker, who is always a guy on the tour and, and seems like, you know, a, a pretty likable dude. And I've been watching him for a, for a lot of years now, and he's he seems like a good guy. He was like a 
man possessed this this weekend. Totally uh, firing up his teammates, firing up himself, firing up. He really seemed to feed off the crowd. Was kind of the unsung hero of this American team. Was was just th- you know kind of really energized and was playing some of the best golf I've ever seen him play from someone that I had written off as kind of like a, oh, nice addition to the team. Where did that come from? And and did you ever expect that from Brant Snedeker? I didn't. Um, Brant's like a, you know, I've interviewed him a few times. He's a really nice guy, really intelligent guy. Um, But man, he came out there and he was like blood and guts, red, white, and blue this week. It was was pretty amazing. Um, It's interesting. I think like the U.S. went through a period between sort of 2004 and or 2002 and 2006 where like players in truth were probably a little indifferent about the Ryder Cup. They were the teams were usually so much better than Europe that Europe kind of really cared about it more. And now we've just seen the pendulum swing the opposite. I mean, these guys coming up coming up on tour and then just these established tour players are just so into it they just want this so bad and i and i think that's what you saw with brant snedeker i mean i would not have pegged him as like an emotional leader of this team but he absolutely was that was you know my favorite sort of subplot of the Ryder cup was brant snedeker becoming sort of a personal coach to brooks kepka and kind of egging him on and being like, you're better than, you're better than Henrik Stenson. You're better than these punks. You know, and I thought that Henrik Stenson team was going to walk all over them. And instead Snedeker and Kepka kind of found this weird groove together. And you could just see Snedeker just in his ear the whole time, you know, like you're the, you're the best player in the world. You're incredible. And it's like, wh- who is Brand Snedeker right now to be this emotional leader of the American team? And after every big putt, he's going nuts after every, you know, Kepka's a pretty level-headed dude. He's there jumping on his shoulders, getting in his ear. It was just, it was really cool to hear. And you could see Kepka being lifted up by it um, as the tournament progressed. And that's a team I wasn't pegging to, you know, to, to knock off some good European teams. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, it's so funny, too, because when you think about something like golf uh, and, and you think about how, like, adrenaline will help you um, – play golf better it's so counterintuitive to think that like the more amped up you get the better you'll play i mean it's a little like saying that if you're throwing darts at a dartboard or something that like the harder you throw them the more accurate they get you know like it Mm -hmm. shouldn't really work that that way but or like if you were driving a car like the faster you drive a car the safer the car gets like it's just kind of counterintuitive but with guys like reed and snedeker and kupka it works that way. Like the more amped up they get, the better they play. The more they focus, the more intense they get, the more hot putts they haul. Um, not everyone works like that, but man, like it was just so fascinating to see these guys accelerate faster and faster and kind of never fly off the rails. And that was, you know, that was the other thing I think Davis Love has to be credited for is is sort of understanding that and picking that up. Um, you know, Zach Johnson. Who was he playing with this week? Uh, he was playing with a uh, on on the last or on on Saturday. I well, totally he, beat, he, beat, he beat Fitzpatrick on Sunday singles. Um, why am I blanking on? The, they had that uh, funny he, handshake moment. Anyway, he he. Oh really, yeah, Jimmy Walker. Jimmy Jimmy Walker. Walker. They seem to find a groove. Dustin Johnson, who's like not known as you know being the guy who's best friends with everyone on tour for various reasons we won't discuss here um but 
finding, you know, who's he playing with? Uh, Kucher? Yeah. You know, understanding that Dustin Johnson is so talented but needs someone who's a little calm like Kucher to kind of keep him steady and keep that going. Like, Davis Love just nailed every pairing all week, just seemed to understand. You know, there are a couple that you'd question maybe late in the day on Friday, but other than that, he had a pretty perfect weekend understanding the teams that needed to be together and the type of players that needed to be together. And it seemed like there was a real plan coming in here, which is just so different from the last, I don't know, eight years. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think what the Americans uh, have done well is that they've realized, like, look, Europe embraced this kind of, we're part of a team, we're all together, we're going to do this together mindset. Um, And America tried that for a while and realized that, look, we're just not going to be able to do that. We're not going to get a guy like Phil Mickelson, who's just notoriously individualistic, to buy into the same thing that someone like, I don't know, Zach Johnson, who's like Mr. Team, you know, Mr. Team player. Um, They're just too different. So what Davis Love has kind of done is he's held this group of, uh, these 12 group of professional athletes together by kind of letting them dance in their own direction, right? Like Mm -hmm. giving, deferring a lot of power to Phil and saying, hey, Phil, like, you know, you can play with who you want, basically. You can go out when you want. Um, Hey, DJ, like, you know, I'm going to pay you with this guy. And he, he, he's not an, he had, he wasn't an authoritarian at all. He didn't really like tell them, this is what you do. He kind of pushed them in the right direction. And then he, um, and then he let things go. And I think that's one of the reasons why they won. You know, he grouped like mind, like the reason why Spieth and Reed worked so well together is because he put them in a little pod and he said, okay, guys, like you guys just go hang out together. And then lo and behold, the team chemistry became really good between Patrick Reed and Jordan Spieth. So, um, I think the Americans have definitely hit on a little formula that works best for that. Absolutely. And on the other side, Europe has to be disappointed. You know, I I, want to talk about Danny Willett's bad week and your great question for him. Before I do that, God, they missed Ian Poulter. And, and, And I know Rory sort of elevated his emotional game, but you, you can't have Rory wear every hat. He can't be the emotional leader and the best player. And, you know, it, 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 it's too much. You could see it by the end of the week. He was just exhausted. And, and I think what's so great about Ian Poulter or a guy like Patrick Reed is it just takes the pressure off the best players. You know, Reed made Spieth's life easier this week. He carried the emotional burden. So Spieth could just do his thing. And you could see Spieth, you know, Reed maybe had more big moments. Spieth played phenomenally. And he was able to do so because Reed's the one there, you know, screaming and getting the crowd, and Spieth can just do his thing. McElroy almost had to be Reed and Spieth combined. He had to be the sort of steady team leader, best player, and also the emotional catalyst. And that's just a lot, which is why you need some sort of a secondary player, I think, to kind of come in and be that be that cheerleader, be that guy. And, and without Poulter, Europe, just no one stepped up. No one wanted it. Yeah, I think you like 100, 100% nailed it. I think one of the reasons why Snedeker, for example, was so big for the Americans was because he kind of came out of the woodwork a little bit. You could have um, you could have like Spieth and Reed charging into battle on the front nine, on the on the front lines. 
but then you'd have a guy like Snedeker tearing off his chest and going like, you know, full Braveheart on these people. Like, and and that, that creates momentum in itself because now you have it coming from two directions. You have like the people on the front lines like repping the red, red, white, and blue. And then you have the people further down who are like, um, who are rising to the challenge and becoming heroes in their own right. And Europe didn't quite have that. Um, none of the rookies really stepped up, which is part of, Part of that is Darren Clark's problem. Um, uh, Thomas Peter did really well, obviously, but he was grouped with Rory McIlroy almost the entire time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you needed somebody else further down the order. If there are four groups going out on one day, you can't have both of your emotional leaders in the same group, really. You kind of need to, you kind of need it coming from different directions. And so what Darren Clark did is he kind of benched a lot of his rookies. I uh, clearly didn't trust them. And uh, there was, so there was no real spark coming from the back of the order. You had Rory and you had Thomas Peters playing really well. But then outside of that, like Justin Rose is a great player. One of my favorite players. I love, you know, love interviewing him. Just a great guy. But he's not the kind of guy who's going to rally the troops. He's a sniper, you know. Um, and, and And I think that's, to your point is where Ian Poulter was such a valuable asset for Europe for all these years because you could put your Rory's out first and then you could put Ian Poulter at the back of the order kind of uh, kind of re-rallying the troops after they've already been led into battle. Yep, and I want to talk about the, the way the team was put together more in a minute. Before we do that, I want to tell you guys about cricketshirts.com. Cricket shirts are the perfect mix of old school style and modern design inspired by natty duds of years past by the likes of guys like Nicholas Palmer, JFK, and Dean. It's better fabric, super soft, 100% certified organic cotton, which makes their shirts as comfortable on the 19th hole as they are on the 18th. Better fit, not too baggy, not too skinny. Better collar. They have removable collar stays, which help keep your collar looking crisp and new. No more bacon collar. Plus, no hassle, free returns and exchanges. They sent me their uh, signature polo shirt in uh, a beautiful navy blue called That's Your Boy Blue. It is fantastic. Fits me well. And what the best thing about it, which Luke can attest to, is I can wear it on the golf course and then wear it out afterward and not look like a total ridiculous buffoon, which is the most important thing with a golf shirt. Absolutely the most important thing. I, I want a golf shirt that I can wear on the golf course and then to the office uh, and it's and it's so classy and discreet that you fools don't even notice that I haven't even dressed up for you guys. And to dinner and to – Luke just wants basically one shirt that he can wear indefinitely. And uh, Cricket's yeah, a self-cleaning stylish <laughs> shirt. That, that would be ideal. Well, Cricket's working on that technology. I don't know if they have the self-cleaning yet. You, you might have to wash it every once in a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it is a fantastic shirt, um, and the the collar stays are great. I like to wash my shirt and then not have the collar look ridiculous, which is awesome. I wore it last night to dinner with my fiance and her mom, and I got some compliments on it. So loving cricket, um, and you guys can get your cricket shirt at cricketshirts.com/ftw. Cricket is spelled C-R-I-Q-U-E-T. Uh, cricketshirts.com/ftw and then enter promo code FTW at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. Again, it's cricket, C-R-I-Q-U-E-T, shirts.com, slash FTW. Enter promo code FTW and get 20% off your first purchase. Go do it. Let's talk briefly about that Sergio Phil matchup, which 
got lost in sort of the shuffle on Sunday and amidst all the narratives, I've never seen two dudes play golf that well at the same time. Uh, best ball score, they combined for a 58, 19 birdies. I just, I was just, it was just a joy. You know, just, just two guys who've been around for a long time just meeting each other at the absolute top of the mountain. And I'm sure there were a little, you know, mumbled uh, side bets here and there because it's Phil Mickelson. So, of course, there were. I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how good that was. Oh, it was incredible. 19 birdies between them. I know. <laughs> uh, Phil Mickelson shot 63 and lost. It, oh, sorry, and, and didn't win. Yeah. I should, it's incredible. Like, um, it's, it's one of these things in match play. I believe they would have each beaten every single other person in the field yep. uh, on the day, but didn't because they happened to be playing each other. I mean, and look, there's an element of this where they each, at a certain point, they each uh, got each other playing better. But man, like, I think you're right. It's It was certainly a little lost, but it was, um, in terms of score, one of the best Ryder Cup matches ever. And what I love so much about it is they talked to the two guys after, and I was expecting, you know... Well, it was just a pleasure to be out there today and and playing with a guy like Sergio, blah, 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 blah. Phil was ticked he he didn't win. He was angry. Like, he he couldn't believe it. He was was sort of, you could see he was sort of angry at himself, even though he just shot a 63. (laughs) Like, Phil, you've done all you could, man. You know, you, 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 you raised your game to the highest level and someone met you there. And you could see he was, he was smarting a little bit. He was not pleased. And Sergio, at the same way, was a little greased at the crowd. Wasn't very happy that he hadn't won. Thought he should have should have done better. It's like that's what I want. That's awesome. That's that's fantastic. Like I, I love the lovey dovey stuff, too, and that's fun. But it, it was cool to just see two guys, absolutely play the best golf of their lives, meet each other, tie, and decide that, and neither of them felt happy about it. Yeah, I mean, look, these guys, these these professional golfers, professional athletes, they're just wired differently than us. I mean, if, yeah. if me and you went out there and um, we tied after make, after each shooting 63, which is highly likely, I think. Yeah, absolutely. This is mini golf, but anyway, continue. <laughs> um, it, it, we would, you know, our mindset would be one of, as exactly as you said, like just kind of happy and grateful and wow, this was fun. Whereas these guys, they just think in terms of, hunt or be hunted you know <laughs> yeah um, and, and that's exactly what both of them said i mean sergio garcia was asked about this round by the smiling um golf channel reporter and he goes you know i didn't come out here to get half a point yeah <laughs> dude just about 63 like it's incredible unbelievable let's talk about the big disappointment of the week which has to be danny willett he, he came in answering stupid questions about his brother's remarks did not play well uh had a wonderful moment in the post uh, post match press conference where you asked him to sum up his week, and he did so with an expletive um, in an awesome moment and good question, good by you to get that to get that out of him. Uh, what went wrong here? What what like what? Why was this? Why was he just so? Was this just overwhelmed? Was he just not ready for this? Is this not the type of player he is? What happened to Danny Willett? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it was such a great little soundbite. And I think it's just one of those things where um, he, he wasn't playing, like, fantastically well coming in. You know, he wasn't awful by any means, but just kind of, 
you know, middling by his own standards coming in. And uh, then, you know, people talk about mistakes um, or the big sort of catastrophic mistakes aren't, don't happen by themselves. They happen one by one. You know, it's like a, a bunch of dominoes falling. And that's kind of what happened here. He wasn't playing well. Um, the brothers, the brothers' satirical article, um, that was a whole mess. He had to apologize. The crowd kind of didn't let him forget it. It was pretty rowdy anyway. Um, he lost his first match, lost his second, uh, lost his third, Europe lost. It was just like one after the other. Uh, it just turned into a bit of a snowball that he couldn't really get a hold of. Um, but at least he was in good spirits about it afterwards. <laughs> Exactly. And if you haven't seen the video, it's on For the Win. Go check it out. It's really great. And if you're with children, cover their ears. <laughs> I, I did like how the team, the Europe team did at least, were sort of in good spirits afterward and gave great answers. And it's like, yo, we got our butt kicked this time. Uh, which leads me to my next question. What was wrong with the way Europe picked this team and how can they improve two years from now? Um. Look, I think there were a couple things. I think the thing that really killed them in the end was the amount of rookies on the team. And the reason that was so uh, was because the team wasn't constructed properly, really. You know, So the way they do it, just to give a brief overview, is they take the top five Europeans on the world rankings, and then they take the top five Europeans on the European tour order of merit who haven't already qualified through the world rankings. Um, and the reason they do this is because the... European Tour wants to encourage people to play a lot on the European Tour. Um, but that came back to bite them today because, or this last week, I should say, because um, he just simply put out a weaker team than they had to. Um, I, went, I, I, I went and tweeted this morning what would have happened if they would have just taken the top eight Europeans in the world rankings, and it would have already been stronger. Um, just running through it briefly, it would have been Rory McIlroy, Henrik Stenson, Danny Willett, Justin Rose, Paul Casey, Sergio Garcia, Russell Knox, and uh, Alexander Norin. Um, those would have been the top eight plus four captains picks of whoever you wanted to pick. But right then, you've already placed one rookie with uh, Paul Casey, who's a sort of seasoned Ryder Cup vet, and then you would have replaced another. You would have replaced other rookies with Russell Knox and Alexander Norin, who were just uh, higher performers, frankly. Like, Russell Knox is a good player. He's better, with all due respect to a guy like Matt Fitzpatrick, my money would be on Russell Knox. So I think the team was just formatted incorrectly. Um, they've gotten away with it because it kind of worked. It kind of just worked for them in the past few years. But this is going to pose some questions now because um, Europeans really hate losing the Ryder Cup. And now they're going to have to figure out something because there's no reason for them to hamstring themselves. And that's the thing, you know, with... The way Team Europe's constructed for years, it's it's just sort of worked out that they've put together the right team. I think this was the year that they finally saw the the inherent problems with it. When you had the number 12 player in the world, Paul Casey, not able to play for the team because of the way it's set up, and for whatever reason he, he wasn't selected with a captain's pick, that's an issue. Um, and I think the way you suggested it is a way to get around it. You know, add an extra captain's pick. Let... Let the let the people you know put together the team that they want and that they should be you know understanding and watching you know these guys watch golf they know who's playing well they talk to the players they know who they want out there um, to give someone an extra captain's pick isn't a bad thing it, you know I, I guess it's not as quite as 
you know, uh, democratic as, as the, the way that it's currently set up, maybe. Um, but at the same time, you know, Europe's got to got to figure out a way to to bounce back from this two years from now in Paris. I think they will. I, I think they'll they'll tweak. I think they'll add a captain's pick. I don't know if they'll go through the, you know, I think it could tick off the European tour if they if they knock that part out of the, the qualifying process. But I wouldn't be surprised if they add an extra captain's pick. Yeah, they could do something like, um, yeah, they, they could do like four world rankings and four um, for and for and the top four on the European tour, and then add, you know, they, they they have four captains picks. But you know, like, look, the I get it. The European tour is sort of um, bleeding a little bit in the sense that its best players tend to pitch up and go to America because the money's better and yada yada. But the European team also has an obligation to find the best Europeans, not the best European tour Europeans. I mean, it, Russell Knox is half American, his family lives in America, but he identifies himself as Scot- Scottish, and the reason he started his career in America was because he went to college over here, his family's over here. Like, that guy, just because that is his life path doesn't mean he's less European. Doesn't mean he should yeah. be put place behind the eight ball when it comes to qualifying for his team. It's So I do think, um, I, I agree, I, it, it probably, there are probably a bit too many politics at this point look if they if they lose two or three Ryder cups maybe this will be an issue that sort of gets um overrun but at the moment there's probably a few too many politics but look the european tour does have an obligation to qualify the best europeans i think let's talk about the crowd uh that was one of the big stories this week were the americans acting out of line were the was the crowd too rowdy is this even golf anymore yada 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 you were out on the course what what were your thoughts there was this an overblown narrative or was that crowd really sort of pushing the line of what's acceptable i think this was hugely overblown so i, I watched a lot of uh rory mcelroy's match and so rory probably got the worst of it and so i think the important thing to remember is were there idiots out there yes absolutely uh, should they be excused? Absolutely not. Like one idiot is too many idiots. So like there, there's no excusing somebody yelling a disgusting, disgusting, aggressive phrase at Rory McIlroy as they did on Saturday. Like there's just no excusing it. it I wish it didn't happen. It shouldn't happen. But it's just important to look at this through context. Okay. So there were 250,000 people estimated there over the course of the week. Um, if somebody would have said, that there were 2,000 people screaming um, hate speech, not cheering after bad shots, which is something that happens at Ryder Cups, not, you know, friendly banter, like crude, vile, vitriolic stuff. If you say 2,000 people screamed it, I would say that number's too high. I, I really, really do think that number's too high. And in, again, in context, you're talking about less than 10% of people. If somebody would have said 250 people were screaming the kind of vitriolic abuse that was made so much, that there was such a huge storyline coming. That sounds about right. And that's 0.1% of the entire crowd on the week. Mm -hmm. It's absurd that 0.1% of this entire crowd um, is demanding so much attention and so much comments from players. And it's being so, um, I mean, look, I get that this is how it works to a certain extent, but it's just so important to remember that, 
you know, we're talking about quite literally 0.1% of people throughout the week who are screaming things that would be deemed like and are and should be deemed completely unacceptable. So I, I, I think it was so, um, the coverage and the talk and all the criticism was so outsized relative to the amount of people who are actually doing it. Yeah, people brought up good points. One being, you know, I've gone to English Premier League games and people are there saying, well, oh my God, wasn't it a violent mess? It was a, it was a, because I saw Green Street Hooligans, you know, and yeah. it's like, I went to a Fulham game versus West Ham and it was like <laughs> going to a picnic. Like, what are you talking? Like there was polite applause for most of it. It was at Craven Cottage and I got a sandwich. It was very lovely. Like, <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and, you know, and that's West Ham. Uh, and, and this idea that, you know, because there is a small subset that that is, you know, defining American golf fans is ridiculous. The second thing I'd say is this 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 anger over cheering for bad shots. You know, uh, are, these are professional athletes. Are, are, are we are we really going to, you know, f- flatter their the delicate sensibilities after they make a If people are cheering during someone's bad backswing, throw them out. That's ridiculous. Don't do that. Exactly. Um, and, look, like, and so just sorry to interrupt quickly, but I was on the 16th hole with Rory versus Patrick Reed on the singles match. And it was a big shot. Rory McIlroy hitting his third shot into the green, um, standing over his shot. Some idiot shouts Rory or something. Uh, Rory, annoyed, steps off his shot. And the entire crowd, which is the biggest assembled on the course on the day, booed him so loudly, pointed him out to officials, officials escorted him out. Yeah. That's like sh- like breaking news when uh, w- when a lot of people get together and start drinking, one you know, some people will start doing stupid things. Yeah. But that is the system working. Uh, that is that is the crowd trying to be to be respectful. You know, of course they're going to trash talk a little bit, but not heckling you know they're going to cheer off the bad shots that's as far as the trash talk goes 90 percent of the time 99 percent of the time and those same people who were criticizing it later in the week were praising it when it gave us the best moment of the whole weekend when the fan from north dakota during the practice round yelled out at the european players after they had missed a practice putt six or seven times saying i could make that putt boys and they said all right dude here's a hundred bucks make the putt and he did which was by far the greatest moment of <laughs> of the weekend for me. Maybe maybe the the Sergio Phil match came closer, or that that Patrick Reed Rory eighth hole. But other than that, that was a moment of trash talk. That was a moment of some guys couldn't hit a shot. An American fan poked fun at them. They called him out, and that gave us the best moment of the weekend. So for them to, you know, say that that's all right during a practice round but it's not all right to to talk some trash app you know it's like what are you what are you talking about i i don't know i i didn't buy it i i thought for the most part that's something that the sport could use and i don't know i was as energized this weekend by golf as i've been in a long time exactly you know like some and look there's a there's a it, it, the part of the problem is because people aren't defining what they think should be acceptable i mean there, there were a few times where like rory was walking down the fairway and the crowd was saying like you know rory rory they were chanting that's fine i in my but that's mm-hmm. fair game you know this is the Ryder cup this is the one time where golf turns into a team event um that's friendly. There's nothing inherently offensive or abusive about that. 
the stuff you're trying to get the, to legislate out is the one guy who's heckling somebody won't let them hit a shot or saying vile things. And when we talk about that, you're talking about the tiny 1%. You police it as best you can, as often as you can. But you don't want that one guy to represent everything else. I mean, it's just not a good practice. I'm not going to do that in two years. Or I hope people don't do that to European fans in two years when one idiot inevitably yells something. I don't want a bunch of Americans to start drawing sweeping conclusions about Europeans or European golf fans. Plus, we've already made up our minds on the French, so it doesn't even matter. Exactly. <laughs> Just kidding, French listeners. I know there's so many of them. Uh, Luke, dude, this was a fun weekend. I'm so glad you're back. I'm so glad you were there for us. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm already Jones, and I can't believe I have to wait two years. I'm, I'm so fired up by this Ryder Cup. I'm going to go play golf this weekend, which I assume a lot of people are going to do, just gotten, getting fired up after watching that. And Luke, dude, always a pleasure talking to you. You're on Twitter at Luke Curdenine. I am. And any stories you got coming up this week that we should keep an eye on? Uh, uh, some Ryder Cup recap stuff. I'm going to a, a bigger feature that I've been working on for a while, so that should drop soon. And um, you know, all I have to say is, you know, Nate, just enjoy, enjoy those two years of those Ryder of that Ryder Cup trophy because, uh, you know, you you won't have it much longer. You know. Oh uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna regroup with young Matthew Fitzpatrick, who will go from being eight years old to ten years old, and I look forward <laughs> to uh, that ten year old. I I had to get a joke in. I'm sorry. I I, I can't believe they put out a a prepubescent boy to play for Team Europe in that game. <laughs> Maybe he'll be shaving by then. He's going to come back to haunt you in two years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll buy him his first razor when he does. All right, everyone, this is the For the Win podcast. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Audio Boom. Like us, review us, uh, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Reach out on Twitter. I'm at A9Scott. Luke's at Luke Curdenine. And Luke, man, let's talk soon. Take it easy, buddy.